Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 14. And when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And having taken a cup, when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And having taken some bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man through whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this thing. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you. For the Lord Jesus, we thank you for his sacrifice for us. We thank you for the, the way in which we have the opportunity every week to celebrate the work of the Lord Jesus, and to focus on the gospel and the symbols that it sets forth for us. So we ask that you would help us as we come to this text, as we come to the whole issue of communion, that you would deepen uh, and, and widen our grasp of what this great celebration uh, entails. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, Jeanette and I were in Canada, and we were told that uh, a, a Chinese uh, seminary professor wanted to invite us for tea. And we noticed as we went there, we do tea as well, but, but it isn't really a very formal occasion, but we noticed that it, there was a sort of a ceremony attached to this uh, offering of tea. And he said to us, you are drinking the finest tea in China. Well, I thought that's a little strange, and so he felt like he ought to explain himself and uh, he told us a story, and I went back to the Internet to sort of refresh my memory of some of the details, but it goes something like this. And there are folks who would say this is really an urban legend, and others who would indicate, as our friend did, that it was actual fact. But way back in 1971, Richard Nixon was the president and uh, you remember that there was the revolution, the communist revolution took place in China, and there was a, a cold war going on between the United States and China. No real diplomatic relations, no trade, uh, and part of the fr problem was that Russia was sort of inserting itself uh, trying to cozy up with China and create a very awkward situation for the United States. Uh, the Vietnam War was creating issues. The, the whole matter of 
South Korea was on the table. And, and so there was an interesting sequence of events. And when you look at some of the documents that have now been released of communications that took place between Nixon and, and Henry Kissinger, uh, you see some very interesting and intriguing things that were taking place behind the scenes. But the long and the short of it is that Henry Kissinger had the opportunity to make it known that the United States would like to at least have an entree to have a visit by President Nixon uh, to China and to, to have some conversations, and, and that took place. When it took place... Uh, there is often the exchange of gifts that, that, that occurs when dignitaries, uh, from countries, uh, get together and, and, uh, they can take all forms. And so when, uh, the head of China handed Richard Nixon this box of tea, uh, Nixon really didn't know what to make of that. Now again, remember, this is a very delicate time in the relationships between China and the U.S. And so the subtleties of whatever is going on in that exchange is really important to know. In other words, is this a joke? Is this an insult? Or is this really uh, a, a, a good gift? So Richard Nixon called his friend Henry Kissinger and he said, would you find out whether, whether this gift is really a gift and it's worth anything or is it a joke? So Kissinger did some uh, inquiry and he found out that there were four tea trees, I think it was, that were sort of the master tea tree in China. And, and from those four trees, there was a crop and, and that crop was worth a great deal of money. Uh, and, and it was very highly prized. The head of China had given President Nixon half of the crop for that year. It was a huge, it was a huge gift. And, and so that, of course, was an encouraging sign and you know the rest in terms of history and how those discussions went and what they led to. But my point in all of that is symbols are really important. We need to be sensitive to those symbols. We need to understand what they mean. And and one of the most symbolic events in, in our uh, church gathering is the recollection of our Lord's death, the remembrance of his death what we call communion or the Lord's table. We are pretty familiar with the, the two symbols, the bread and the wine. And, and so we, we celebrate those and they're the focus for us every week. I, I think you know, and I'll go ahead and confess to you again that my understanding of those two elements is that the bread is commemorative of the Lord's incarnation. It's not a celebration or a commemoration of his death. It's a celebration of his incarnation. Now, somebody might say, ooh, but 1 Corinthians 11 says, here is my body which is broken for you. And you'll notice in the, in the margin somewhere it'll say, that's, there are, there are some Greek manuscripts that say that. Here's the problem. Nowhere else does it say it. 
And Jesus made it clear from the Old Testament, the gospel writers made it clear, not one bone of his body will be broken. Remember that? And that was big at the cross. They broke the legs of the other men. They didn't break the legs of our Lord Jesus. He was already dead. My understanding of the bread is that it celebrates the incarnation. In order for the sins of man to be dealt with, they had to be dealt with by a man. And so God the Son came to this earth as a perfect God-man. Now, the other side of that piece is that the sacrifice that was offered for sin had to be a sacrifice without blemish. You didn't get away in the Old Testament economy. You didn't get away with giving God some um, um, economy version of, of a sacrifice. That was an insult and affront. And that's because unless that man were perfect, there is no way in which he could die for the sins of anyone but himself. So it was necessary for God to come in the form of man. It was necessary for God to come in the form of a man without sin, a perfect man. That is what we celebrate as we break the bread, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. It is that which is prerequisite to what we celebrate with the wine. The wine is the remembrance of the Lord's sacrificial death as the perfect lamb, his sacrificial death. And so it is the bread that certifies and qualifies our Lord to make his sacrificial death, which he does, and it's symbolized by the wine. I'm not going to dwell too much on that side because we have that pretty well in mind. What I'm going to suggest to you is there is another symbol that is associated with communion that we tend to overlook. And the reason we overlook it is because it isn't a part of our observance of communion, and that is the meal. So let's think about the meal, if we can, as it is associated with uh, communion. Communion, we say, is the Lord's Supper. I've heard it said from time to time by a child when are they going to serve the snacks? And and when you think about it, the snacks, if you want to go with that language, the snacks are, are in, in the parlor. They're not here. So even what we have is just a small token symbol, a little piece of cracker, unleavened, and a little sip of, of grape juice. We do not have a meal that we regularly observe as a part of our communion service. But when we look in the New Testament, we see that's what it is. When you look, for example, in Luke chapter 22, the passage that, that I read, uh, in, in uh, Luke it talks about the celebration of the Passover meal, the Passover celebration. So that the, the, the wine and the, and the bread is a part of that meal, but there is an entire meal that encompasses that gathering, that celebration, and the communion is a, is a subset, as it were, of, of that meal. When you come to uh, Acts chapter 2, and again in Acts chapter 20, you discover that the early church, uh, after it was birthed at Pentecost, 
the early church gathered. Um, they gathered in the temple, I think, for teaching, and they gathered from house to house. And in the house to house gathering, they observed the Lord's Supper. And the impression you get from reading the very earliest words about the church is some did it daily. They observed the the celebration of communion when they gathered and ate. They observed it as a part of their meal. Same seems to be the case in Acts chapter 20 when they come to break bread. That expression, breaking bread, I think not only describes the communion act, but also the eating of a meal. If we're not yet convinced, I think we just need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Is it not clear there that what you have is the Lord's Supper and it's played off against the the heathen a ceremony of worshiping idols? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the issue of meats offered to idols is raised by Paul. By the way, that was an issue, remember, at the Jerusalem Council as well in Acts chapter 15. But when you see uh, Paul starting out, he says in effect, is it all right for a believer to, to eat meats offered to idols? Personally, I don't think he's just saying if you went to Kroger's or you went to Costco or whatever and you saw meat that you say, was this a part of a heathen sacrifice? I think what's going on is when you ate meats offered to idols, you ate those as a part of the heathen celebration. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There's there's always a, a, a fancy theologian around to come up with fancy reasons why you can or can't do something. You know, here's the Jerusalem council. You can't eat meats offered to idols. So somebody comes along and they say, well, you know, there really is no God but God. If there is no God but God, then these idols don't represent anybody. Because there is no God but God. And so if these idols don't represent anybody, then what's the problem with going and going to one of their services and, and having a steak dinner? That was the logic. Paul lets that lay for a minute, and he basically says, even if that were true, if doing so caused your weaker brother to stumble, then it's a sin for you. Even if you could do it, but doing it causes somebody else to stumble, then it's not a freedom that you have. Then he goes to 1 Corinthians 9 and he says, now here's a legitimate freedom that I have as an apostle. I have the freedom, and Barnabas has the freedom, to receive remuneration for our ministry as apostles, like the other apostles do. We have the freedom to be supported so we can lead about a wife if we were to choose to do so. But he said, we believe that the gospel is advanced by our not taking that money. You watch a few television programs with television preachers, and you think the only thing television preachers can talk about is money. Well, nobody could say of Paul or Barnabas, they're in it for the money. Paul worked with his own hands. He supported himself. And, and so he's saying, I had a right to be supported, and I set that aside for the sake of the gospel. Then he goes to chapter 10, and he said, you know, the real problem is this. You don't have the self-control to say no. That steak dinner just looks too good. 
And at the end of chapter 10, now he really moves in and he says, you need to understand when you sit at the table of the Lord, you have fellowship. You have a share in the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word there is koinonia. Just keep that filed away. And what he's saying is, when you participate and have a share in the, the, the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, how can you go to another table and share in what they do? How can you mix your, your participation in what is holy and right to, to, to going to this other heathen festival? And my understanding of those festivals is they were drunk and disorderly and immoral. That was just part of the fabric. That's the way it worked. I think that's why when you come to 1 Corinthians 11 and Paul talks about misconduct at the Lord's table, what he's saying is you act at the Lord's table like you did at the table of demons the night before. You can't do both of them. You don't have that freedom. So Paul is dealing with this whole business of of the meal and its significance. And he's saying it is of vital importance to understand the symbolic reality that takes place. You are fellowshipping when you take part in that meal. You are fellowshipping with God. You are fellowshipping with fellow saints. And if you go to the other table, you become a partaker of that as well. That's inconsistent. So think about the meal now in an Old Testament sense. I love the book of Genesis. And one of the things that you see in Genesis is that Moses has given us a clue, and the clue is a well. If you, When you read through the book of Genesis, whenever you come to an incident at a well, something important is taking place. That's just his marker. It's saying, pay attention, Rebecca, remember, uh, was, was uh, identified as the wife at a well. Rachel was identified as the wife at the well. Jacob's character was revealed at a well while he waited for Rachel. Here they are standing beside this this uh, privately owned well with a capstone on it. They didn't give that water away, folks, any more than they give gas away at the gas station. You go, you pay. So Jacob comes and he says, Guys, what are you all standing right here? The sheep? Here, let's get our sheep out to pasture. Let's water them and get going. And they say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't do that. We stay and wait, and they open the well. And then we water our sheep, and we go. Who are the they? <laughs> They're the ones that own the well. <laughs> and, and so what happens? Here comes Rachel. What does Jacob do? He cuts in front of the line. He takes the cover off the well, waters Rachel's flock ahead of everybody else, and goes his way. What does that tell us? It tells us Jacob is a man who doesn't like convention. He doesn't like rules. He doesn't like to be bound by the way things are done. Well, God's going to deal with him because you remember, Jacob thinks he's getting Rachel as a wife and he gets Leah. And, uh, and Laban says to Jacob, you know, you know how it works around here. You always get the oldest daughter first. Well, that wasn't Jacob's plan, but it was God's. But the well was a key. In the scriptures as a whole, the meal, is, is a symbol, is a key to something important that's going to happen. For example, the fall 
takes place in the context of eating, does it not? The garden was a kind of cafeteria. Remember now, Genesis 1 said, you can eat anything that comes from the green plants. No meat, no meat, vegetarian stuff at this point. So in the garden, you had the whole cafeteria of what you could eat, but God gave one restriction, not not the forbidden fruit of the forbidden tree. But they chose the menu, and uh, they were cast uh, out of the out of the garden. You have uh, the covenants in in the Bible are associated with a meal. Whenever <laughs> whenever you go to a restaurant and you see they have a new menu, what does it mean? Prices went up. That's what it means. I, I don't think I've ever seen a new menu that had cheaper prices. That's that's their way of saying things have changed going to cost you more. When you see the menu change in the scriptures, it's telling us that there may be a covenantal change. So you have the menu in Genesis 1 is anything green. After Noah, and in the context of the Noahic covenant, there is this change of menu. Now you may eat meat, but not the blood, right? Then you come to the uh, Mosaic covenant. And now all of a sudden you have this whole huge distinction between what is clean and what is unclean, and you can't eat what is unclean. When you get to the New Testament, in Mark chapter 7, you remember our Lord says, hey, you don't get defiled by what comes in from outside. You get defiled by what is inside. That's what defiles you. And then it makes this statement. Thus declaring all foods clean. You understand what a game changer that was? See, in the Old Testament law, the clean and unclean distinction of foods meant Gentiles and Jews could not eat at the same table. That's what we see in Galatians. Uh, carried over, unfortunately, but we see that in, in, in Galatians. Jews and Gentiles were kept apart by the food laws. When Jesus declared all foods clean, he's now saying the barricade is gone. So that part of that which is said in, in Ephesians 2, where the, the, the wall of division has been torn down, part of that was the food laws. And so Jesus declares under the new covenant, that now food cannot divide Jews and Gentiles. And the church then, as it comes together, and remember, they're coming together for a communal meal. It's going to be really tough to have the bacon table here and the, you know, the other table over here. It's not going to work. You've got to have believers able to fellowship with one another. So the covenants are signaled by a menu change, if you want to put it in that term. Uh, you got the, uh, the fall was a food issue. Lot's guests, remember in, in uh, Genesis chapter 19, once Lot invites those people to his home and they sit at his table, there's now a set of understandings that said he has to protect them. So having someone sit at your table in, in the Old Testament days and in cultures today as well, I might add, is, is a symbol that there is a relationship now between the one who is the host and the one who is the guest that has many, many implications. 
Exodus 24 is one of the strangest passages for me in all the Old Testament. Exodus 24 is uh, after the giving of the law. Moses is about to go up on the mountain to get a hard copy, pardon me, of the law. And, and, uh, but he, it's right before that that Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel go up the mountain and you remember they, they eat a meal. Let's look at that. Exodus 24. It's a, it's a incredible text. Given the fact no one could see God and live and the whole danger of being in too close a proximity to God, it says, starting at verse 9 of Exodus 24, then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and they saw the God of Israel and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. He did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel and behold, and they beheld God and they ate and drank. Now I think that's a sort of prototype, a sort of prophecy, a hint of what is to come because that wouldn't surprise us at all if we read this in the book of Revelation, would we? We would be surprised by that. But we are surprised in the Old Testament because of the distance that men had to stay from a holy God lest they be wiped out. You've got uh, other indications, I think, in the Old Testament that the meal is sort of a prototype of heaven. So Psalm 23, you prepared a, a meal for me in the presence of my enemies. There is that sense that not only now, but in eternity, there is going to be this fellowship that is around uh, the table. You've got uh, the, the meal as a part of Israel's worship. When someone offered a sacrifice, often there was a meal associated with that. You have the Exodus and the Passover and the Passover celebration. There is a meal that is celebrated in the context of their redemption uh, from Egypt. So over and over again, you see this matter of the meal as having great significance. Let's think about meals in the New Testament. One of the first things that Jesus is criticized for is eating with sinners. See, they understood very well that to sit at the same table together was to have intimate fellowship. When Jesus sat at the table with sinners, that's just like fingernails going down the chalkboard for the Pharisees because the name of their game was separation. Holier than thou. That's what they were. They couldn't imagine the Lord Jesus having that intimate contact with sinners. In fact, some of the most dramatic things happened in the context of a meal, right? Mary and Martha. Martha's crying the blues about not getting help. Uh, uh, Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet, the woman in Luke chapter 7, there at the Pharisee's house, anointing the feet of our Lord with her tears. All those things happen in the context of a meal. And it's the Scripture saying to us, listen up, something important is taking place here. Jesus spoke of heaven in banquet terms. You remember there's a, a wedding feast and people are invited and everybody has excuses and, and so he goes, he says go out in the highways and the byways and, and bring them in. Uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 22, our text says, I won't drink this again until I do so 
in the kingdom when the kingdom has brought in. There is a, a vision of, of what is yet to come uh, by the meal, and our Lord made that, I think, very, very plainly clear. Here's another piece that's very interesting to me. Eating and drinking are symbols of embracing or believing in Jesus. John chapter 6, you all know that text, uh, where it's about the the bread uh, that's been given for the 5,000, and then the Lord says, you know, I am the the true bread that comes down from heaven. If you don't eat my uh, flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part of me. And, And the people say, whoa, that is too much for me. I'm going down some other road. And And many, many left. But as John makes clear, Jesus was talking about a spiritual reality. He wasn't talking about literally drinking literal blood. What he was saying is, unless you partake of my sacrificial death, if you take it into yourself and it becomes a part of you, that's what belief is. Real belief is embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and it's described in eating and drinking uh, terms. Well, you can imagine, I already referred to it, but when you get to Mark 7 and Jesus declares all foods clean, that is monumental. Now, just because Jesus said it then doesn't mean they got it, right? So Acts chapter 10 comes along, Cornelius sends a messenger to have Peter come and preach the gospel at his house, and I'm sure... Peter said to himself, well, if I go there, I'll probably stay long enough. They're going to eat. I can't do that. What God has called clean, the vision says three times, don't you call unclean. Peter reluctantly goes, preaches the gospel, doesn't get to the invitation, and they get saved. And when he comes back, his fellow Jewish believers rake him over the coals for preaching the gospel to Gentiles. In their minds, that wall is still up. It's still there. Finally, they say in Acts chapter 11, well, so then, God must be saving Gentiles too. Next verse. So they went about preaching the gospel to Jews alone. They just didn't get it. And so we come to Galatians chapter 2. Seemingly, a a, a harmless event takes place. Some come down from James, come down from Jerusalem, and they're gathered there. And Peter just subtly removes himself from the Gentile table and sits separately with the Jews. That was symbolic. I'll tell you what, Paul was better than Henry Kissinger on symbols. Paul sniffs it out and he says, this is huge. This is huge. This is a denial of the gospel and all that it stands for, of breaking down that wall, the barrier of participation. And so he uh, calls not only Peter, but Barnabas uh, to account. So all of that is to say the meal is vitally important and it's a part of, in, in, in the scriptures, it's always a part of the communion service. So let me suggest a few things to ponder. I'm thinking about the gospel first and foremost. And there is a portrayal of the gospel in the Lord's Supper. Would you not agree? The incarnation of our Lord, 
the death, uh, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. It's all there. But there's there's something, I think, about that meal that's interesting. I think that we often, I say that we as evangelicals, oftentimes we speak of the offer of the gospel in the context of hell. And, and we present the gospel as God's solution, the ticket <laughs> to, to miss out on hell. It is that. Don't misunderstand me. The gospel delivers men from sin and judgment, and that means hell. But I find it interesting that the persona of our Lord Jesus in the gospels and this whole presentation of, of, of the gospel at the table says to me it is more like an invitation to a banquet than it is an escape from hell. Do we present the gospel in that way? Do we present the gospel in the sense of Jesus Christ has taken human form, he has sacrificed himself for our sins so that we may now enter into intimate fellowship with him and with our brothers. That doesn't have as much negative to it as I think Christians sometimes put on the gospel. I'm saying it's really a matter of emphasis. It's not a matter of one being true and the other not. It's simply saying, what's, what's the, what's the spirit of the gospel presentation that we have? Well, Jesus offered a banquet. And it was interesting too that it was a, it, it was a banquet in which anybody and sinners in particular could come. Because the banquet was not based upon what they did. It was based upon what he had done. It was based upon his invitation. All right. The Lord's Supper and the meal is an invitation to wayward saints. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Remember? I can open the door and you can come in and sup with me. How many times have I heard that, maybe have you heard that, as a gospel presentation? No, it's not a bad one. (laughs) I'm not saying that. I've already said the gospel is like being invited to a banquet. But in Revelation chapter 3, it's the context of wayward, disobedient, carnal Christians. So not only is the table something which is an offer or an invitation to an unbeliever, it is an invitation to a carnal believer. Now, think this through. If church discipline in its maximum mode equals you can't even eat with him, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, maybe Matthew chapter 18, if church discipline means you cannot associate with a professing Christian uh, by eating a meal with them, then you see that when you come to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, what it's saying to the wayward Christian is, table's still here. Table's still here. Your opportunity to sit at the table, have fellowship with Christ, and fellowship with your fellow believers is there. You've forsaken it, but it's the invitation, I think, to come back as well. Obviously, the, the, the communion service is a remembrance of the historical realities of the incarnation and the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. 
I fear that in, in some evangelical circles like ours, I'm not saying I've heard this here exactly, but I've heard it elsewhere, there, there is the sense, I think, that's given that this is just a memorial service. It's just a recitation and a review of ancient history. I don't see that when I, when I come to communion in the New Testament. I see this as an event that the church, the early church, could not wait to do. Every time they ate a meal, somebody said, let's get the bread and the wine out. Let's do it again. It, it, it was a beautiful thing, highly to be desired. And it wasn't just this boring recitation of, well, we've been there before. No wonder so many churches either put it off altogether, have it distant periods from each other, or give it a perfunctory little add-on at some service. In my opinion, this communion service that we observe every week is the high point. Now, I've been around for a while here. I remember the early days when there would be a number of people who came because they were attracted by the teaching of God's Word, the exposition of God's Word. And, and truthfully, in the early days, people tolerated the Lord's Supper been around 40 years now or so, and i got to tell you, I think the winds have changed. I think if you had to decide, will I come for the Lord's Supper or for some other meeting that takes place here, I think the Lord's Supper gets top place. And I'll say, rightly so, rightly so, that is the high point of when the church gathers together And it's more, I'm trying to say, when we come together and our Lord says, you know, two or three are gathered, I'm with you. I know that's another context. But there is a sense, because of the intimacy and the fellowship of the table, there is a sense in which we experience Christ in our presence. There is a way in which, for example, when when we gather together, it's a beautiful thing to watch all of the different gifts that are a part of our body. And we have a meeting where we, in effect, fire the starting gun. That's Lenny's job this morning, right? Fire the starting gun. Who knows what's going to happen next? And yet the Holy Spirit guides that in a way that wasn't structured and top-down. I'm thinking about what happens in so many churches, and especially those that that aspire to be big. There is a way in which the unpardonable sin is to have uh, 30 seconds of silence. No, 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 10 seconds of silence. There's a a carefully orchestrated performance. Uh, You can't have a half-baked choir. It has to be a professional choir. Even if you go out and hire them from the union, and they're not believers, you got to look good and sound good. And, and there's a way in which I think many churches have deceived themselves into thinking, if we look really good, that's what's going to draw people. My, my desire, and I confess, I have a passion for this, my desire is that people will come to the Lord's Supper and say, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been looking for. A body of people who loves one another a body of people who comes together eager to fellowship with each other, a body of people who come to exalt Christ together. That's what it's about. And if that's what 
unbelievers see, that's what they ought to see. And if that's what new people, visitors to a church see, that's who we are. And I have to say to you, I'm not ashamed of it. I think it's a beautiful thing. Do we need to do better? You bet. The reality is the Lord's Supper is a beautiful place and it typifies, I think, what's really wonderful about his relationship. Okay. Evangelism. I think the Lord's Supper is not primarily evangelistic, but it is evangelism, is it not? And that's the beauty too. I know that there are churches that I've gone to and you've gone to and you keep saying, I know they're going to do it. They're going to get there. The gospel's coming somewhere. And it doesn't. You say, what? Oh, hmm. We're going folks, we got the gospel every Sunday. Every Sunday. And, and we ought to work harder sometimes to make sure that people who come from outside who aren't familiar with us or aren't believers, they understand, here's what this means. It's the gospel, and it's the gospel for you. Wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Now, let's just talk about a meal in, in more general terms. I think ministry groups, and I know some do, some don't, but I think one of the beauties of ministry groups is when you share a meal together, there is a level of intimacy there that takes place that I think can't be matched. In, in other ways. There's something about that. Uh, let's think about ISI, the International Student Ministry. When international students come and they partake of a meal and they see what's going on, there's the, 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 the occasion out of which the gospel can be given and, and presented. It, here's my question that I'm asking and, and my fellow elders will chat with me about this, I'm sure, tomorrow when we meet. But but the question is, why aren't we having a meal? Why, why aren't we having a meal? I guess what I'm saying is, if the meal itself is a symbol, then when we meet every week without the meal, do we really have the same benefit? Trust me, I understand the logistics. Anybody that's thinking logistical terms says, oh my goodness, what is this guy saying? All I'm saying is the early church did it. Um, what if we once a month had a potluck uh, and that took place in the context of the Lord's Supper in our gathering? What if we did that? What would that look like? Here's another one. The closest thing we have to a meal right now is the fellowship break. And I only want to ask this question, and I'm not sure where it leads. Is what we do in offering food and fellowship there reflective of what should be true of the Lord's Supper and its accompanying meal? Are we excluding people? Are we doing something there that perhaps is not really consistent with the Lord's uh, Supper? Here's another one. I'm, I'm just going wild and woolly on you because you can't fire me. I, I think that a meal has a wonderful, wonderful role in the greeting of visitors. I, I think the, the idea would be that there are X number of people who every week say, and I know some do, by the way, 
who say, we're going to have a meal ready and we're going to plan. We're going to grab somebody this Sunday and we're going to have them there for a meal. Well, here's the wild and woolly part. Do you think doing that at a restaurant has the same value as doing it in your home around your table? I, I, I'm just asking myself that question. Trust me. I understand how much easier it is to ask somebody to the restaurant. <laughs> you go, you eat your meal, you go home. Then to say to your wife, honey, we gotta have a dinner for 10 today. And, uh, and then you get to clean up. I understand the implications of having a meal at home. But what I'm saying is, do you think there is the same level of intimacy at a restaurant that there is at your table? I'm finding myself saying, I'm not so sure you do. Now, am I saying, don't you ever? (laughs) This is suicide, you understand? Nobody will ever ask us out to dinner again. So I understand what I've done. I've sawed the limb off on the wrong side. But... But, but really, think about, think about the implications. If a meal is so significant, if fellowship and intimacy with our Lord and with one another is so important, uh, that it focuses around a meal, then how can we do that best? That's really what I'm saying. How can we do that best? I think these are things that perhaps we need to contemplate. One more last shot. We live in a culture of people who profess Christ and distance themselves from the church. They basically just say, I don't need church. That's that's not a part of it. How do you do what they did in the scriptures? How do you do what they did in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and Luke 22? How do you do what they did and not go to church? There's salvation is not the introduction to solo Christianity. It's it's an introduction to the body of Christ. That's what we do, and I think we do beautifully on Sunday mornings. We may need to do it more mornings than that. But I don't see how people can be devoted to Christ and not to his church. Now, if you're here, perhaps somebody... Apart from faith in Christ, let me just invite you to dinner. (laughs) His dinner, first of all, and we're glad to give you one too. A banquet that he's prepared. He's done all the work. And he invites us to sit at that banquet now. And it's only a foretaste of the banquet that's yet to come. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the communion service Thank you for the privilege we have every week of observing that. May we do it better. May we do it joyfully celebrating the intimacy and fellowship we have with you, as well as the incarnation of our Lord and his sacrificial death. In Jesus' name, amen.